good morning. It's time for this week's episode of History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro with your host, Tom Price. Take it away, Tom. Good morning and welcome to History's Hook, where I guarantee that we'll get you hooked on history. I'm your host, Tom Price. Each week on History's Hook, we'll be bringing you interesting and informative stories from the past in an effort to connect the history in our own backyard to the big events that compose national and world history. We'll explore a new topic every week and bring in experts and eyewitnesses to the events, places, and people we'll be talking about. This is not your high school history class. We're going to make history fun and compelling. We're going to get you hooked. Today, we are going to continue our important three-part series exploring the lives of Tennessee's first ladies, Rachel Jackson, Sarah Polk, and Eliza Johnson. Today's episode will look at the life of Eliza McCardle Johnson. Eliza Johnson was hugely influential on her husband Andrew Johnson's life and career. Married when she was just 16, Eliza was the youngest future first lady to marry. Together, Eliza and Andrew Johnson enjoyed a marriage that lasted some 48 years. She is credited with largely educating her young husband, who had had a difficult childhood with little opportunity for learning. As her husband's political career rose, Eliza often remained in the background. She was quite sickly, having contracted tuberculosis, and as first lady only appeared publicly on a couple of occasions. She succumbed to her illness in 1876, just six months after her husband, died of a stroke. Joining me today in the studio is my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, professor of history at Columbia State Community College. Good morning, Barry. Good morning, Tom. Together, we are joined via phone by Kendra Hinkle, museum specialist at the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee. She has been a guest previously on History's Hook when she was our resident expert talking about the life of Andrew Johnson. Welcome back to History's Hook, Kendra. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first off, Tell us, what do you find most interesting about Eliza McCardle Johnson? Um, I think that there's that it's there's much more to her than more most people realize. Um, most people only know either the young bride who tutored her husband or the invalid recluse ill with tuberculosis in the White House. But there's really a lot more to her that I discovered as I was doing research. She traveled a surprising amount um, during the Civil War, and she was very involved. Um, in her children's lives as well. Interesting. I think we had talked previously that she's kind of a hard person to get a bead on. There aren't very many biographies of her. Uh, and in some ways, she's a little bit lost to history. So I'm, I'm excited about the show and, and talking more about her life. So Eliza was born in Washington County on the Tennessee frontier. Um, what was Tennessee like at the time of her, her birth? What year was she born and, and what was it like to grow up there? Um, she was born in 1810, um, and it was it was very much the frontier at that point. And whereas some sources cite Telford as her birthplace, others cite Leesburg. And there's actually a McCarty Methodist Church about 15 miles northeast of Greenville that sits roughly between the two with Leesburg Road on one side of the Eleveny and Telford Road on the other. And in that church, there's a marker um, noting it as the birthplace of Eliza McCardle. Um, according to Laura, her grandfather gave the land where she was born to the Methodist Episcopal Church to erect a meeting house there. So hmm. that, that's an interesting tidbit that people may not know. Right. Who were her parents? What do we know about them? Um, John and Sarah Phillips McCardle. Her father was a shoemaker. And it's really neat that there's still his boot-shaped shingle um, for his business um, in the collection at Tusculum University. But in 1824, John opened a tavern in Warrensburg, which is about 18 miles from Greenville. Um, he died eventually. When we're not sure when. He's mentioned in his father's will, I think in April 1826. Um, but by the time Andrew came to Greenville in September, she was considered an orphan. So we're not sure how long his tavern ran or if the entire family was living in Greenville by the time he died or not. Do we know where John was born, where he came from? I don't. Not not offhand. It may be in genealogy notes somewhere. But this is a, a very predominant Scott-Irish um, community, so likely somewhere nearby. Okay. So poss possibly in Tennessee then, not not North uh, Carolina or South Carolina or possibly, or yeah. yeah. I need to look into that a little bit. Interesting. More. What about Sarah, the mother? Uh, what do we know about her? 
Yeah, they're both kind of shadowy figures. Um, once John died, we know that Eliza attended school and that she and her mother continued um, the business of making like sandals for people um, and, and quilts and doing mending around town. Huh, really interesting. So she had a little bit of an education as far as you can tell? Mm-hmm. She was evidently a student, had been a student at Ray Female Academy here in Greenville. Um, and it, enough to get enough of an education to tutor her husband later. We have some of her school books that she um, tutored him by in the early days of their marriage. Right. So uh, as you said, her father died when she was uh, still quite young. Um, and my next question was going to be, what what did she and her mother do to survive uh, after the death of her husband, but it, it, or her father rather? But it sounds like they sort of took up where he left off with shoemaking. Exactly. And there's an article in the Cincinnati commercial from 1865 um, when Johnson became president, reporters became interested in Greenville. So one came and visited the tailor shop where Sam, one of Johnson's former slaves, was living at that point, And they interviewed his wife. And behind the tailor shop, the reporter noticed a small old house. And he said, well, how about that house? Who owns that? And she said, the president owns it, but his mother-in-law used to own it, but she's been dead a long time. She said, my mistress says she has seen the old lady and her daughter who afterward married Mr. Johnson carrying shoes and slippers to the stores. They made their living by making slippers and light shoes and sewing for neighbors. So there you go. That's our, our firsthand account. Interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. did, did the McArdles own slaves? There hasn't been any indication found so far if they did. And, you know, by the time Eliza and her mother were on their own, I would say they were struggling to make ends meet for themselves. <laughs> sure. Um, how about religion? Religion plays a key role in this time period in American history generally, uh, and, and Tennessee is sort of at the forefront of that as as a frontier state. Uh, religion is moving through. The Second Great Awakening is about to really blossom. Uh, what were Eliza's uh, religious, what was her religious background? She was a Methodist, and she attended the Methodist church that was not far um, from the homestead when she was able to. How much of an influence did religion have on her? Any indication of that from her writings? Um, part of the problem is with writings is that the Johnson's later family burned the correspondence between Andrew and Eliza. <laughs> so unfortunately, we don't have a lot of firsthand accounts um, from them. But she does have a book on Methodism and um, her personal Bible um, so I think it played a great deal having faith um, to face all the turmoils that they experienced in their lives. Sure. Why? why what's the reason for burning their correspondence? Um, I think my my personal opinion is that there was a lot in there of maybe the fam, family members that were troubled, their son Robert in particular, having trouble with alcoholism and whatnot. Um, that the later family just didn't, they wanted to keep it private. Sure. Uh, it's not an uncommon thing. I've come across it on numerous occasions, especially with people who get into public life and political mm-hmm. life, that they'll often call for their correspondence to be <laughs> to be destroyed. And from, right. a, from a historian standpoint, it's, it's terrible. But uh, you devastating. Sort, of, sort of see why, <laughs> why they might do it, on the other hand. Uh, did she have siblings? Did Eliza have brothers and sisters? No, she was an only child. So how did Andrew and Eliza meet each other? Well, their paths crossed pretty much as soon as Andrew came into town. He had been a runaway apprentice from North Carolina. And um, when he came into Greenville, it was with a blind pony, a two-wheeled cart, his mother, stepfather, and everything they owned. And But she she spotted him. She was with a group of her friends, and she said to them, there goes my bow girl's market. So she she liked what she saw from the start, evidently. <laughs> with a blind pony and all. That's, that's interesting. I know, right? R- right. Rem- remind our listeners uh, a little bit about Andrew Johnson's background. Obviously, he's coming into... Greenville as a as a young man uh, with not much. Remind our listeners where where he came from. What was his childhood exactly. like? Yeah, he was born in 18, 1808 in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
Um, his father died when Andrew was three. So his mother in desperation apprenticed her boys out to a tailor. Um, they were supposed to stay until they were 21, but, um, Johnson got into a bit of trouble and, and ran off. Um, a reward was put out for his return. Um, and he traveled around pretty extensively for that time period, returned to Raleigh, eventually tried to settle the reward. Um, but collected his mother and stepfather and decided to make a new life on the on the frontier, as we've said, which was pretty much west of the Appalachian Mountains at that time. So he, he comes to Greenville. Who's with him when he comes into town? Just the mother and, and stepfather. And stepfather. Mm-hmm. Um, and Greenville becomes their home. What's Greenville like in this time period? I know today I've traveled there many times. It's a charming community, beautiful little town right at the foot of the the mountains. Uh, What was it like at the time that Andrew Johnson and Eliza meet? Well, about that time, it had about 500 inhabitants. It was a bustling little town. It had a college, Greenville College, um, a couple of churches, um, large courthouse, and um, let's see, note say, in addition, there were two taverns, four stores, a jailhouse, and scattered mansions belonging to the town's wealthier citizens. What was the source of the wealth? Any idea? Um, was there industry there was, or business or planting? Not big farms here. Um, I know that one of the wealthier citizens owned a mercantile and um, ran the post office as well. So, and then there were there was tobacco. Tobacco became a, a bigger selling point in this area as well. Sure. So, how old was Andrew when he brings his two wheeled cart into Greenville? He was. 17. 17. And so Mm -hmm. in 1827, just a year later, they marry. Yes. He's just 18 years old, and Eliza is how old? 16. 16 years old. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just kids. Do do we know who married them? Well, that is one of history's amazing things. Ironically, Mordecai Lincoln married them. He was a justice of the peace in town, as well as a relative of Abraham Lincoln's. So that name would come to play in their lives again later on. <laughs> it's an amazing story. Uh, all these connections uh, are, are they're amazing to me. Uh, it really is. What was, their, what was their life like together, an 18-year-old and a 16-year-old in Greenville, Tennessee? How, what, was, what was that like for them? Well, you know, to begin with, I think it was a, a typical life on a frontier town, making a living, starting a business, raising a family. Um, I think Andrew always gave Eliza credit for what he was able to attain in life. And of course, later on, there were many peaks and valleys that they experienced. Um, What did Eliza look like? Are there any contemporary accounts that describe her? Earlier on, and we, we have locket photos of Andrew and Eliza when they were younger, Fortunately, so this kind of corroborates it. She was um, described as having large hazel eyes, light brown hair, a generous mouth, and a brow indicative of intelligence and poise. Hmm. So a very, very lovely description. How tall was she? Do we know? Oh, small. Probably, you know, most sources and, and family tradition holds about 4'11 to 5 feet tall. Huh. And how tall was Andrew Johnson? He was 5'10". So a little more than average height. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Were they slaveholders? Yes, they were. Um, in 1842, uh, Johnson bought his first slave, Sam. And then in January of 1843, he bought um, Sam's half-sister, Dolly. So um, he ended up with Sam and Dolly and their families, um, along with a young man named Henry. Um, so 10 altogether. 10 altogether. But starting mm-hmm. in the 1840s. So they're married in 1827. So the first little little less than a couple of decades uh, in um, before they have enough wealth that they're they're thinking about purchasing slaves. Right. Um, right. So what is he setting up shop as a what 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 is his background? What is what is his job? Which ones? Who? Uh, I'm sorry, Andrew Johnson. Oh, Taylor. Yeah, he um he bought a building at public auction for $51, um, had it rolled from Main Street on logs to a corner that he owned. His daughter Martha said that most all of the town turned out to see that happen. 
and um, he set up his tailoring trade right across from um, his home. Interesting. What do you, what do you suppose is the reason for uh, moving a building, which is no small task? Right. Exactly. <laughs> Rather than building a, building new. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I I think he just um, saw the opportunity and took it. Huh. Interesting. Um, so he's a tailor. Is he a good tailor? What What is business yes. like for him? Yeah, it was booming. He said he always made a close fit, was punctual to his visitor or to his customers, um, and and did good business. Um, and the tailor shop became the, the the sort of hangout place for men in town, and they would debate and discuss current events as men will do. And that's where they discovered that Johnson had a knack for debate, and he joined the local debating society at the college, and eventually they encouraged him to run for office, and that's where he became an alderman. Eliza is often credited with teaching him how to read and mm-hmm. write, uh, and yeah. it's, I assume in this early period in their lives uh, in the tailor shop where that's starting to happen. Can you give us a little bit of background on that? Yeah, she later said that um, he had the basics, he had the rudiments of an education, which he would have had to have learned in um, the tailor shop in Raleigh where he was apprenticed to do work and that man would have people come to read to them as well and one book really caught Andrew's attention called The American Speaker and he asked to have it and the man told him if he learned to read he could he could have it so he did um, but then Eliza definitely she said she helped with um, his writing um, his math and just just furthering the beginnings of what he already had. Um, speak about their children for a little bit. How, how long were they married before they started having children? Not long. <laughs> uh, Martha was born in 1828, so the very, very next year. And how many children would they have in all? They had five. Um, Martha was the oldest. She was very much her father's daughter. Um, they ended up with three boys and two girls. There was Martha and Charles, Mary, Robert, and then 18 years later came along Andrew Johnson, Jr., who they called Frank. Interesting. Uh, you mentioned Andrew Johnson sort of jumped into a political career kind of right out of the tailor shop. Uh, his mm-hmm. first position you mentioned was alderman. Um, where, where does his early political career lead him? Oh, he holds nearly every elected office you can hold on the path to the presidency from alderman to mayor he was um, state representative, state senator, governor, U.S. representative, U.S. senator, vice president, president, military governor. So um, he just it was a stepping stone all the way up to the presidency. It, it's really an amazing career. I'm always um, just really impressed that he he starts off as an alderman sort of at the at the lowest political rung and goes all the way to the top. Right. Top of the chain. Pretty, pretty incredible. Um, what made him popular? What what was the thing that made Andrew Johnson make that kind of political rise? I think it was his intense connection to the common man. Um, the people in the town knew that he had their best interest at heart because he had been one of them, and he would he would he would fight for their their needs. And he was a, a brilliant speaker, and that was a a very popular pastime during that time as well. He he sort of incited the audiences and got them excited. Right, and and our listeners might remember if they listened to the uh, Andrew Johnson show uh, as well. We talked a little bit about his oratorical skills, and uh, it wasn't uncommon for politicians in this time period to speak for two or three hours at a time. Right, and he was he was one of the best ones out there. Um, he became a very effective orator in 1834. He became the mayor of Greenville, and after a year, handily won a seat in the Tennessee House. So he's coming to Nashville, uh, is the capital, I think, by that point in time. Does Eliza come with him? No, she she stays home. Um, she's She's running house and home. We know that in some instances, she was... Um, in charge of finances as well while he was gone. Um, we have a letter from their son, Charles, regarding Sam, uh, who was asking for his payment and a job he'd done. And um, Eliza at one point told him he'd do better to give than to receive, and he said he didn't get half enough know-how. 
So it shows us that, that Eliza was in charge of some of the finances and taking care of things at home while Johnson was gone. So what was that partnership like? Um, there, there are some presidential couples or political couples who sort of complement each other. The, the Pokes certainly come to mind. They had no children, so Sarah Polk sort of immerses herself in her husband's political career. Is that something Eliza did as well, or is she is she managing from the home? Is she primarily dealing with um, issues on at home and leaving the politics to him? What what is that partnership like as he embarks yeah. on a political career? Yes, I she's she's one of you know I <laughs> I don't even consider her that involved in his politics at all. She's she's home with the children. Um, taking care of them and and raising the family during that time. Let's talk about that. So the children are gro- growing up in Greenville. What kind of educational opportunities did, did they have? They made sure that all the children were really well educated. Uh, Mary attended the Oddfellows School in Rogersville. Martha actually attended school up in Georgetown for a while, where she was befriended by none other than Sarah Polk, um, who gave her some jewelry that we still have in our collection. Um, Robert and Charles both attended, um, Franklin college, I think for a time, um, they studied law and pharmaceuticals. Robert followed in his father's political career and Andrew Jr.'s education was a little bit more sporadic because of the civil war. But during his father's presidency, he attended, um, school both in Vermont and in Georgetown for a while. Hmm. So they, it sounds like they all had strong opportunity, educational opportunities uh, growing up. And that was, yeah, that was very, very important to Andrew Johnson, especially after not having had the opportunity to go to school himself. Right. Uh, Johnson served in the Tennessee Senate before being elected to the United States House of Representatives. Uh, so he's heading off to Washington now, sort of another level of political action. Did Eliza go to Washington? She went to Washington once, as far as we know, and that was in 1860. Um, Johnson had been staying at the uh, St. Charles Hotel, which I think became the Capitol Hotel later, um, with other congressional members. But as it had a colorful and, as they say, at times appalling history, (laughs) before you know it, they're staying at a different hotel. But in just, I think it was a couple of months, it said that failing health compelled her early return to Tennessee. So she's, she's starting to show signs of consumption at this point. Okay. So uh, consumption, uh, also known as tuberculosis, when, when yeah. do we think she contracted that? This is one of the first instances where it's, it's really definitively mentioned. I don't, you know, we don't have an exact date of diagnosis, but family tradition always held that after the birth of her last son in 1852 um, is when her health started failing. Johnson was a congressman when another Tennessean was in the White House. Do we know anything about the relationship between James K. Polk and Andrew Johnson? Oh, well, it began amicably enough, I believe. Um, <laughs> but Johnson considered Polk um, a rather weak presidential candidate because he'd lost two gubernatorial races. Um, but he supported his bid for the president, and afterwards they split on patronage issues, um, but he still maintained support for Polk during the Mexican War. Right. So Polk was a strong Jacksonian Democrat, mm-hmm. strong strong politically. Uh, in, in fact, for Polk, the worst thing a person could do was to switch teams, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, Johnson was a Democrat, but his political views were not always towing the political line. Is that right? Um, he. I mean, he considered himself a Democrat and a Jacksonian Democrat as well. But when the opportunity came to be with Lincoln on the National Union Party, um, he he accepted that invitation. Um, there's a, a quote uh, that James K. Polk wrote in his diary about Andrew Johnson, which I, I always thought was interesting. You, you mentioned that Johnson kind of thought of Polk as a weak candidate. They didn't necessarily see eye to eye. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he snubbed Polk, or at least that's how Polk viewed it. Polk wrote in his diary, Among the visitors I observed in the crowd today, this is in the White House, was Honorable Andrew Johnson of the House of Representatives. Though he represents a Democratic district in Tennessee in my own state, this is the first time I have seen him during the present session of Congress. Professing to be a Democrat, 
He has been politically, if not personally, hostile to me during my whole term. He's mm. very vind- <laughs> he is very vindictive and perverse in his temper and conduct. If he had the manliness and independence to declare his opposition openly, he knows he could not be elected by his constituents. I'm not aware that I've ever given him cause for offense. So there, there's a little bit of a, a difficulty, I think, between between the two of them, either personal yes. or, or political. But uh, if 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 you know anything about Polk, everything was personal if it was political. So um, we, uh, we probably shouldn't. And Johnson, yeah, Johnson could be pretty. Uh... Oh, what's the word belligerent at times, shall we say? <laughs> okay, that's what I was going to ask. So what, is, what is his demeanor like? Uh, I've, I've read several accounts where he sounds a little bit sour uh, sometimes, uh, but also a great order. Do you, do you have a bead on him in, in terms of what, it, what was his demeanor like in public? Oh, yes. He, um, he was stubborn. He was uncompromising. When he would, he would study a position... For quite some time, but then when he settled his mind on it, um, that was pretty much it. He he had his mind made up. <laughs> um, I think we're going to take our first break right here. Uh, we'll be back in about three minutes on History's Hook. Don't go away. History's Hook, sponsored by ServPro, will be right back right after this brief commercial break. History's Hook, sponsored by SurfPro, with your host, Tom Price, is back. Take it away, Tom. Welcome back to History's Hook. Today we're having a conversation about Eliza McCardle Johnson, the wife of Andrew Johnson, uh, one of our three first ladies from Tennessee. We're speaking with Kendra Hinkle, who is a museum specialist at the Andrew Johnson National Historic Site in Greenville, Tennessee. We were talking before the break, Kendra, about sort of that connection between Polk and Johnson. Uh, all three presidents were, uh, Tennessee presidents were contemporaries. They all knew each other. What was Johnson's relationship with Jackson? Did he ever meet him? Did he know him personally? No, I don't, I don't think so. But he, Jackson was pretty much Johnson's political hero. And um, Johnson, as governor in 1857, proposed converting the hermitage into executive mansion for the governor but you know i still remember hearing the parallel on one of our old park videos the government the federal government it must be preserved so that was that was definitely something they had in common right johnson gave up his seat in the house and successfully ran for governor in 1853 what was eliza's role as tennessee's first lady if Mm. if there was one (laughs) right again um she was keeping the home fires burning and she'd had a newborn son in 1852, so I think she was pretty well occupied. Had her hands full as a, as a mom. <laughs> Interesting. Right. So Johnson went to Nashville by himself. Did he live in Nashville for that entire, for his entire, was it two terms as a governor? Yeah, I think he, he was in Nashville, yeah, during the whole time. Maybe just, just trips home. Do we know what that was like for her, being more or less a single parent with several little children, including a basically a newborn uh, Right. Um, she, she's, as I said, you know, not much um, correspondence there to go by, but very active in children's lives and running the household, maintaining it back in Greenville. Johnson's political career, Andrew Johnson's political career, continued to um, progress. After two terms, Johnson began actively campaigning for a seat in the U.S. Senate and was elected. So back to Washington again. Um, major issues uh, are coming up in the 1850s, of course, that are going to culminate in a, in a civil war, the issues of slavery and popular sovereign, sovereignty and secession, of course. Um, where did Johnson ally himself as the country began this split uh, and uh, as it headed towards civil war? Where, where was he in the mix, politically speaking? He was, yeah, he was a very strong pro-unionist. And of course, the situation concerned Eliza. And while she did support him, she she feared a great deal for his safety. Um, one of his brightest, highest moments was when he made the anti-secession speech. So it was the pinnacle of his popularity in some camps, but in other ways, he was burned in effigy and faced angry mobs on on train rides. And one indication of of how the women folk in his life were supporting him during this time he made in one of his speeches. Um, he said some members of the Confederate numbers came forward and demanded of my family, whether I was at home saying, if I was, they were there to hang me. And, um, the daughter 
was indignant at their conduct and said, no, my father's not at home. He is absent in another county where he's making a speech for the union. And this, I presume you knew, or your cowardly crew would not have dared to show themselves at this house. So they strongly stood in his defense. Wow, that's a, that's impressive. So he's in, <laughs> I think, one of the most difficult positions <laughs> in in Tennessee politics, if not national politics, uh, that he is remaining a unionist. If I remember correctly, he is the only uh, congressman from the South who remains in Congress uh, after secession happens. Um, so, so he's a unionist in a pretty strongly Confederate state in Tennessee. Yeah. It's yes. a it's a brave stance. It's a dangerous stance. Uh, and, and as you're saying, the the women in his life, his wife and his daughter. How old is is Martha at this point? The oldest daughter. Oh, my goodness, 18, 28, okay. 38, 48, 58, she's in her 30s, okay. <laughs> to do um, my math there. But but standing very strongly uh, with him in his unionist uh, views. Right. Um, did Eliza write anything? Did she, is there anything written about her in this time frame when when the split is happening? Um, mainly it's sources from contemporaries, but we're able to piece a lot together from that. Um, she's in enemy territory. At this point, um, Johnson was considered an alien enemy of the South. We know that she spent time at her daughter Mary's house during a portion of the war. Um, Mary's husband had taken part in bridge burning activities in East Tennessee and was hiding out in the mountains that first winter. And um, Eliza and Mary would try to take care of the, the men's families and uh, smuggle food and information to them. Um, and eventually she was evicted from her own home, Eliza was. Where did she go? Oh, my. Now, this sort of starts the most interesting part of Eliza's history. Because <laughs> in April, and they received the eviction notice. Eliza told them that in her present state of health, she could not possibly leave. So the provost marshal um, consults with physicians, and they confirm that to leave would probably kill Eliza. Um, by July, um, their son Robert saying her health has started to improve. In September, Eliza says she thinks she's comparatively well enough to make the trip to Nashville. So in October, some of the family members are traveling. They're sleeping in vacant houses, baggage cars. Um, when they get to Nashville, Forrest said that not even Jesus Christ could cross his lines, and we should immediately turn back. <laughs> but Governor Harris got Forrest to get them a two-horse wagon to carry them in to Nashville. So they joined Nashville, Johnson in Nashville, where he was serving as military governor. And it said that when he saw Eliza, he he wept at tears of thankfulness at the at the side of her. I can't imagine how difficult that would be uh, worrying about your family. He he's of course in Washington at first, and then military governor of mm -hmm. Tennessee, which makes him one of the most hated characters in the state at that point in time. Exactly. Tennessee is widely divided of course, and is a, a front, uh, a battlefront during during the war. So it puts him once again in a very difficult position. She's away and trying to get through lines and finally manages to make it to Nashville. Does she remain there for the remainder of the war? Well, this is where it gets really surprising because you think of Eliza as the invalid who, who's never, you know, able to do much. But from Nashville, she went almost immediately to Cincinnati to see Robert, <laughs> her son, because she was wild with worry about him. Um, but that took such an effect on her health. The next thing you know, she is in Vivay, um, Indiana, to take the cure. The next thing you know, in January, they're in Louisville, Kentucky. So Mary can see her husband, Daniel. And so they're doing just enormous amounts of traveling during the war. Um Part of the irony is this. Um, Charles had accompanied the family to, to Nashville. Eliza was wild to see Robert, so she left. And by April of the next year, Charles was killed um, from a fall from a horse. And none of the family members besides <laughs> Robert um, at that point came down to uh, attend the funeral. So a lot of, a lot of sadness um, going on in turmoil. How did she handle that? Do we have any indication at all of the loss of her son, how that affected her? Yeah. Um, one of the greatest sources we have, a contemporary of Martha's named Laura Langford, wrote um, 
about the Johnson women. And she said that any mention of Charlie's name for years after brought the hot tears to their eyes and a sadness hard to dispel gathered about their lips when some familiar object recalled their loved and early lost relative. Hmm. So it was a devastating blow to them. Yeah. Yes. What about Johnson? Andrew Johnson? Did he, did he have any, how did he react? Uh, Yeah. And later, later speeches, you know, I mean, who has, who has suffered more than I? And he would say that he lost um, a son, a son-in-law, both during the Civil War. So it was a hard hit. Yeah, I think I think Andrew Johnson's story, some of that side of his life gets lost uh, to history. Uh, I, I think that you often hear, especially in Tennessee, Johnson is still pretty strongly maligned as a military governor and mm-hmm. remaining a Especially unionist. Especially in Middle and West Tennessee. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I find him to be one of, one of the bravest characters uh, in in American history for the stance that he took, as unpopular as it was, and uh, in, in at least in Middle and West Tennessee, uh, mm-hmm. that, that he he sort of stuck to his guns and 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 backed up what he believed in, uh, often right. to the peril he, he had, of his own peril and the peril of, peril of his family. Pretty exactly. Incredible. Yeah, he, he held it for the Union. So in 1864, Lincoln began looking at Andrew Johnson as a possible vice presidential running mate for the election that year. Um, do we know at all how Eliza felt about that? Uh, this is a whole whole new realm. In the midst of civil war, her husband is is... Uh, all of a sudden on the ticket as a vice president, uh, a Tennessean, a vice president with Abraham Lincoln. What, what did, exactly. Do we know what Eliza thought about that? Well, once again, Eliza's um, emphasis is on the family. Um, at, at this point, you know, in August of 1864, she was trying to get help for their son, Robert, who had who was also suffering from consumption, but had also fallen prey to alcoholism after Charles's death. Um, they were on their way to Boston, um, during this time to see Dr. Dio, Dio Lewis, who was a temperance reformer and pioneer in physical culture. So once again, she was, she was holding strong to, to helping the family during, during it all. Hmm. So did she, she didn't go to Washington with him then as, as vice president? Well, I guess that all of this, all of this happened pretty pretty quickly after he takes the oath of office um, for vice president. I think the very first time that he has an opportunity to speak with Lincoln is April 14th, which is the day that Lincoln is assassinated. And then all of a sudden, Andrew Johnson finds himself the next president of the United States. Right. Uh, how did she react to, to that news? And where was she when the assassination took place? They were back in Nashville at that point, And... Um, our main indication, well, we have two that sums up. Um, the first is a letter from Martha, their daughter to Johnson. You know, my my dear, dear father, we've just heard the sad news. She said, I never felt so sad in all my life. And poor mother, she is almost deranged, fearing that you will be assassinated, our distracted and torn up country. And then a couple of weeks later, another contemporary wrote, I've not seen Mrs. Johnson since the day we received the news. They told her too quick and completely prostrated her. Her health before was improving. So it was a major setback. <laughs> her husband had been a target for assassination as well on the night that Lincoln was killed. Right. Uh, her His uh, to-be assassin, uh, I think, uh, uh, ended up drinking uh, too much that night and, and uh decided not to carry out the the task right uh, so he he survives uh, and he finds himself in the White House at what point does Eliza Johnson and uh, I the rest of the family come to Washington it's later in the year um, Johnson took an office in the Treasury building for a while to give Mary Todd Lincoln time to to grieve and mourn and gather things and move out and um, so it was it was later in the summer that the family joined him in Washington at the White House. So I think for most White House families, moving into the White House is a big day in their lives, usually a joyous one. I think for the mm-hmm. Johnsons, it was not that. The circumstances in which they found themselves in the White House uh, following the assassination of Lincoln was a particularly dark time. Did she write about it at all, of what it was like to to go and become first lady of the land? 
She didn't, but fortunately, William H. Crook, who was their bodyguard um, in the White House, gives us invaluable insight into Eliza. And the very first day they arrived, he said she walked slowly, and while her face was lighted up with interest, yet she betrayed no such enthusiasm as might have been expected of almost any woman under the same circumstances. Of course, she appreciated to the full extent the exalted position her husband occupied by virtue of his office. Perhaps she may have understood this better than he, um, he said. Hmm. So, What was her health like? Regular, oh, she was frail at this point. Um, Crook says that he turned to and leaned upon and was constantly influenced by this frail little woman. Um, so she was very retiring in the White House. She didn't attend many social functions, but Crook reveals that um, she would look through the living quarters. She would make sure that things were as, as her husband wanted. Um, she would check in on him during the day and she would keep a scrapbook and she cut out newspaper articles about her husband and show him, they said the good ones in the evening, but she would save the bad ones till the morning because she would knew she knew he would be in a better mood. Hmm. Kendra, is it from Crook that we, have the story that they uh, allowed uh, Mrs. Johnson to choose the bedroom that she wanted, and she chose the room that was directly across from uh, the president's office. And uh, every morning after breakfast, she would meet with the president, and they would discuss his schedule and his appointments. Um. Could be, because he says that after breakfast, she would usually look through the living quarters, stopping here and there to rest, calling upon her husband in his office. And um, so, yeah, that parallels that. She, she, she took one of the smallest rooms in the uh, in the White House, but it adjoined the larger um, sort of common room where she could um, associate with the grandchildren because they were all up there with them as well. Uh, there was one thing I read She sounded where she sounded a little bit like Sarah said in, in the afternoon that she would every afternoon she would literally devour every newspaper and political journal and uh, uh, whatever she could find to read about about the current events, about the government, about her husband's administration. Right, because, and Crook mentions her intellectual prowess. So, you know, she, she, there was more to her than people realized, you know, not, not just the recluse, but Johnson would, would talk things over with her. And um, she was the the temperance for him. If he started to lose his temper, it was said that she could calm him down by laying her hand on his shoulder and saying two words. And those two words were, now Andy. Hmm. Uh, Interesting. So there's no official position for First Lady, of course, in this this time period. Um, But so often we see First Ladies who have a real influence on their husband, whether it's a calming one, like it, it seems for mm-hmm. for Mrs. Johnson or uh, Sarah Polk, who sort of takes helps take the reins of government, so to speak. The role of First Lady, I think, has always been an important one. Um, the broader family comes along with them to the White House. How, how many children, grandchildren are in the Johnson White House? Oh, uh, Robert comes. Andrew Jr. is there. Both daughters are there. Mary comes and goes, but Martha is the one who takes on the the role of White House hostess for her father. And so Martha has two children and Mary has three. So it was it was a pretty lively place with everybody there. How old are the children, the grandchildren, Johnson's they're, grandchildren? They're you know younger than 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 teens, so they're they're small at that point. Um, and there are invitations to you know, carnivals and balls. And Johnson had a children's party. For his 60th birthday party, he invited 300 children to the White House to, uh, by invitation of his grandchildren, to help celebrate. Huh. And and Martha is the one who's sort of organizing all of the social events in the White House. Definitely. Not only is she organizing and attending to them, but the White House was in pretty bad shape after the Civil War, and she got a thirty thousand dollar appropriation to remodel it. And she impressed everyone by doing it with dignity and tact. She told the press, we're just a plain people from the mountains of Tennessee, called here for a short while by a national calamity, and I hope too much will not be expected of us. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to set the bar low. <laughs> <laughs> but she impressed people by um, by all that. She, she cleaned the White House from uh, attic to basement 
Johnson's presidency was destined to be a contentious one, uh, trying to heal a country that had been torn apart by a civil war. A Southerner at the reins of a federal government, it was difficult, if not an impossible position to be in. Um, he is our first president to be impeached. Mm-hmm. Where Where is Eliza during all of the impeachment proceedings? And uh, what she and, and speak to Martha too, if if her voice is louder as I suspect it is. What what is their role through all of that difficult time? Right. Well, Crook again actually gives us um, words saying that they went on family business as usual. Um, but Eliza's relief really burst through when Crook rushed to the White House to tell her of Johnson's acquittal. Um, he came in crying, he's acquitted, the president is acquitted. And he said, then that frail little lady, using the word frail again, rose from her chair and in both her emaciated hands took my right hand. Tears were in her eyes, but her voice was firm and she did not tremble once as she said, Crook, I knew he'd be acquitted. I knew it. Thank you for coming to tell me. Hmm. And he said he'd never forget um, the picture of that feeble, wasted little woman standing so proudly and assuring me so positively um, that she'd never doubted for one instant that he'd be proven innocent. They end their term in the White House. And what's next for them? Do they come back to Greenville? They come back to Greenville. Eliza said, I'll be happy when I when we're back where I feel we best belong. And, and she meant Greenville. <laughs> Always home for her. Always home. Um, did she, what, what is retirement like for them? Um, another lady who attempted to write a biography on Eliza, Margaret Blanton said that, um, she gave up because <laughs> she didn't find enough information, but she left us some really good tidbits. Um, cause I think she got to look at some of the correspondence. Um, daily Eliza came down from a room, she says over the parlor and sat in a deep chair by his window and Johnson himself would go outside and pace up and down the street in front of the house. And he would uh, stop at intervals and tap lightly on the glass and they would make eye contact. And then he'd, he would move on. Um, Mary got married again. Her husband, Daniel, died during the war and she married a man um, once they returned home from Greenville. And her stepdaughter remembers seeing Eliza um, and that she would... She wore gray or purple shawls at breakfast, and she set pretty plates on the hearth by the fire to be kept warm for the cakes and syrup to follow. But Robert died just a month after the family came home, apparently from an overdose of laudanum that he was taking for his consumption. And uh, Laura Langford said the world saw but little more of her after Robert's death. So I think that was pretty much the last really big devastating blow. Um, Andrew, of course, uh wasn't content just sitting at home, he jumps back into the political arena. Uh, remind our listeners, what, what was he doing in retirement post-presidency? Oh, he, <laughs> yeah, he was campaigning, trying to get back into the office. He had a couple of unsuccessful bids, but he, in 1875, became the only president ever to return to the U.S. Senate. Right. So, uh, but Eliza, uh, content at being at home. I assume at this point. Yeah, yeah, pretty much not able to uh, do anything much else at that point. Is her health on a continuous decline at this point? Yes, it yes. Is. Um, what did Greenville mean to her? I think it was home. I think it was where she felt most comfortable. You know, she had married a tailor, after all. <laughs> Imagine what what she felt at the whirlwind that followed. I think Greenville was, was the stable thing in her life. Right. Right. Marrying at 16 years old, she had no idea what was no idea. what was ahead of her and, and maybe was not the life that she would have chosen for herself had she had a say. Uh, I find her to be an interesting person. I wish there was more information about them. I certainly wish there were, that their letters had, had survived. Right. Uh, I, I think she's an interesting and, and uh, uncommonly strong woman of the frontier. Mm-hmm. Uh, would have liked to have known, known a little bit more about her. What is Eliza Johnson's legacy? Well, I think, to me personally, she has a book of poetry entitled The Happy Life. And inside, she marked some poems. And to me, those are like little messages from Eliza. (laughs) Hmm. And one in particular she marked was called Love and Adversity, which um, says not ours, 
the vowels as such as plight their trough in sunny weather. Um, and, it, you know, it goes on to talk about adversities that they faced. But at the end, she says that love, it says that love looks beyond the clouds of time and through death's shadowy portal made by adversity sublime by faith and hope immortal. So I really kind of think that is Eliza's legacy. Hmm. Um, you spent many years with the Johnsons now. How long have you been with the National Park Service at the Johnson site? Oh, my goodness. Well, I started volunteering at the Holiday Open House in 1988. <laughs> so quite a while. I got on as a seasonal in 1994 and hired on full-time in 1998. So, so getting to be a while now. You've been with them a good long time. What, uh-huh. what, what is your impression of the Johnsons? How do you feel about them? We have authors that come on the show from time to time. I like to ask them, you know, after you spend a significant amount of time with right. with some people from the past, how, how how do they make you feel? Do you like them? What, do you, what, do, what are your impressions of the Johnsons? Exactly. Well, in the time that I've been there, I have seen feelings and opinions about the Johnsons swing widely, <laughs> from very positive to very negative. And I think my view is somewhere in the middle. You know, I think they were human. I think they were the product of their time. I think Johnson could have evolved more with the tremendous opportunity after for change after the Civil War. I think we're still dealing with many of the issues from his presidency today. Um, I think what he did on a personal level was very different from what he did on a political level. And I think Eliza supported him anyway through everything. Well, it's a, a fascinating story. Uh Remind people uh, about the hours of operation for the Johnson National Historic Site. Um, how, how can they find you online? Right. Um, online, they can go to mps.gov um, slash Andrew, or A-N-J-O, which is our website. We are open on a limited basis right now because of COVID. We're open Monday through Friday from 10 to 3, and that's the Visitor Center Memorial Building an early home right now the uh the homestead is still closed because it's or closed because it's an enclosed space but the cemetery remains open seven days a week greenville is a wonderful town it's a beautiful place uh if you're listening from middle tennessee it's a it's a great weekend trip uh lovely i've always admired how greenville has portrayed andrew johnson how they've celebrated him in greenville tennessee uh so if you have an opportunity go to the johnson national historic site it's a it's a really well done uh, historic site kendra hinkle from the andrew johnson national historic site thank you for talking with us again today absolutely my pleasure i leave you with a quote from eliza johnson and this is a paraphrase because eliza johnson quotes are hard to come by a first lady's public persona is all very well for those who like it. I do not like this public life at all. I often wish the time would come when we, we could return to where I feel we best belong. Thank you to our sponsor, ServPro of Murray and Giles County, for their support. On behalf of my co-host, Dr. Barry Gidcombe, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of History's Hook. Thank you for listening to History's Hook with Tom Price. We hope you enjoyed today's show. Be sure to tune in every Friday at 10 a.m. right here on WKRM 103.7 FM for a journey through time. Today's edition of History's Hook was sponsored by ServPro of Murray and Giles County. ServPro, faster to any disaster. 